All right, guys, repeat after me. I am the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You were skeptical on that one. Way to go, all right. Final line, apart from me, you can do nothing. Great job, guys. Take a seat, all right? You got it. Those are final will and testament words of Jesus. He is gathered with his disciples. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. He has got a limited period of time to impress on them, prepare them, and share with them everything he wants to say. And when you're Jesus, you've got a lot to say. When you've seen heaven, when you've created the world, when you know humanity down to its most infinitesimal degree, you've got a lot to say. But time is short, and he's picking his words wisely. And what he chooses to tell his disciples in those final moments is, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You could read this in John chapter 15. It's the seventh of one of these I am statements Jesus makes. Littered throughout the gospel of John are these, these, these metaphors, but these actual like, amazingly profound statements Jesus makes about himself, saying things that are outlandish, but just chock full of insight and revelation that he invites us to see, saying things like, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gateway to God. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pretty like outlandish and egotistical things to say if you ask me. Imagine someone coming up to you and going, yeah, I'm the light of the world, right? Unless it's true. And the final one that we come to is Jesus saying, I am the true vine. I say final one, kind of, sort of, because later on in what what is arguably my 14th favorite verse of the Bible, Jesus comes before these guards who are to arrest him, and they go, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he goes, I am. And he kind of like power blasts them, like force blasts them to the ground, and they all kind of get leveled in the dirt. I love that passage. But we're not there yet. I am. Am the vine, Jesus says. And just like all of these metaphors that Jesus uses, they're all drawing on this, this deep, ancient, sacred history and tradition of the Jewish people. Jesus is not just picking things and making things up on the fly. He's drawing on a, on a, on a symbolic framework, a conceptual worldview that, that people who were following him and listening to him and getting rubbed the wrong way by him in his day would have known so well. And, and the statement Jesus makes, I am the vine, has that exact same rich, deep, symbolic history. So go with me today as we unpack this last will in testament statement that's so rich in meaning. Let me read it to you first. Let me catch up to speed with what's going on. 
and then we'll take the journey. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And if you remember it, now say the next line with me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He goes on from there. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other because Jesus has a lot to say and there's only a short period of time. And when there's only a short period of time and you have a lot to say, you gotta shove it all in. I mean, every verse is just dripping here, right? A metaphor of how we understand our relationship to God and Jesus' relationship to God and, and our relationship to Jesus is, our, is the gateway or, or our connection, if you will, life source to our relationship with God. This invitation of Jesus to you to, to abide in him, to remain in him, to live in him. And the goodness, the fruit that will result, the fruit that will show who you are, which is a follower of him, is something that brings him joy, that will bring your joy to completion. As well, Jesus says, invitations to ask God for whatever you 
want, and that he'll do it crazy, right? But invitations nonetheless. Boiling it down to simple commands to love each other. But to love each other in a very specific, defined sort of way. Not so much based on how you feel or what moves you in the moment or captures your heart, but a sacrificial love that lays down its life as Jesus showed his love for you. He says, love this way. That Jesus says, you're my friends. Amazing that God would call you a friend and invite you to be his friend and live in relationship with him as a friend, to root that friendship and obedience to him that's fundamentally marked by love of him and each other. How much more could he shove in here, you know? And he does it in like three minutes of text. But I'd like you to go on a journey with me to aspects of this that maybe you've missed, that maybe you don't know, simply because the symbolism of what Jesus is drawing on is, is, is it's foreign ground to you. So if you've got a Bible, it helps to look at this. And I want to show you something that if you're not paying attention, your eye might skip. For the last several weeks, we have been going to this section that lasts from John 13 and is going to take us up through John 16. You can turn to John 15 if you'd like to see where I just read today. But John 13 through John 16 is describing the discussion that Jesus had, the events that were transpiring as Jesus was eating with his disciples in that upper room on the night that he was betrayed. You read the other biographies of Jesus, it's like that long. He meets with them. He says, here's some bread, take and eat, it's my body. He says, here's some wine, take and drink, it's, it's my blood. And then it kind of moves on. But here in John, he's got a lot more to say. Here in John, he takes us back. He forces us to pause to show us that the meal was long, not just like, you know, drive through as the other gospels might feel, but conversations and teaching and prayer. But there's something that you may have missed along the way. There's a certain assumption that you might be making of where this is taking place. Fueled by me every week saying in an upper room. Now, the upper room started in John 13. But can you look at the last verse of John 14 with me? The very last verse of John 14, what's it say? Come on, let's leave. Come now, let us leave. And then he goes on for two more chapters of teaching. Where? I, I mean, look, I've been around people like this and you've been around me long enough where you think the dude's landing the plane and then he kind of goes on to chapter two. Maybe Jesus is doing the exact same thing. You know, oh, I thought this conversation was done. And then he ramps up again, and there we go. Maybe Jesus is doing the exact same thing. 
Or maybe we should take these words for what they say, come on, let's go, and use the implication that they're actually now on the way. On the way where? We'll turn to chapter 18. It's not until chapter 18 that we come to this place when he, had, when, when he had finished praying, John 17 is a long prayer. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. How many of you have heard the phrase, the Garden of Gethsemane? Anyone know that phrase? It's a garden, a place, where Jesus went with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He went there to pray, and he went there to pray things like this, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. Lord, I don't want to suffer. Jesus is so much more eloquent than me, he puts it like this, Lord, take this cup from me. But he chases it with not my will, but your be done. It's where we read those stories of Jesus in agony, in the dark, praying and begging God that there might be another path of obedience. Praying so earnestly, the Bible will say that his sweat coagulates like drops of blood and falls to the ground. Many of you who have grown up in a church environment are no doubt familiar with the story. And that happens in this garden, in John 18, across the Kidron Valley. And we assume that right before it, Jesus is in the upper room, as though they walk out their front door and then they're there. But John 15, 16, and 17, give us some journey talk, and I don't mean the band. <laughs> Conversations on the way. Sometimes the best conversations I ever have with the people that mean most to me are not the sit-down, deliberate, intentional ones, but the ones that are happening on the way. Have you ever had those conversations? On the way. It's a drive and it's long and you're making small talk. You get somewhere early, never happens in my family, but you're... <laughs> You're waiting. You're killing time. You're filling in the gaps. It's in process from one place to another. And the conversations continue. Jesus has met with his disciples. He's washed their feet. He shared the meal. He said amazing things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he kind of wraps it up and he goes, okay, guys, it's time to go. Let's leave. And here we are now on the way. We're not at the garden because there's a distance to be traveled, but we're on the way. And Jesus, or John, rather sharing what Jesus had to share along the way. Now go with me. Go with me into Jesus' world to the sites that you might pass on the way from an upper room across the Kidron Valley to the garden that is there. The most prominent feature that you would pass in Jerusalem would be the temple. 
This is the place where the people of God have been gathering since the days of Solomon, where God promised to let his glory reside. And in the days of Jesus, the splendor and opulence of the temple hit new heights unknown to every generation before it. And the Roman Jewish historian Josephus will talk about what the temple was like. Read him someday if he'd like to get into Jesus' culture and Jesus' world. But one time a year, the gates of Jerusalem would be left open and the temple doors itself would be open as well. It would be the night of Passover for people to come and pray as it would seek to accommodate all the pilgrims that would be gathering in that place. Kind of like if you come to Fellowship of Faith at 11 p.m., chances are no one's going to be here except one night a year on Christmas Eve. Are, are, Are you with me? Because there's something special about that day. And so the temple would remain open. And I love how this one author, Gary Burge, will write about this, talking about how Jesus arguably is passing by the temple. And and, and if he's true, go with me with the imagery of pausing there before he hits the garden to talk and to teach and to pray these things of John 15, 16, and 17. Now, if you came to the temple, you would come to an entryway. And this entryway would be on the west side. And you would come in, and before you hit the altar and hit the holy place, there would be this gigantic linen curtain. And Josephus describes it as being embroidered with with all different kinds of flowers of different colors. And he described how there was these huge gold ropes and gold chains that would be hanging down. And there, birthing out of this, this symbol, this place, this, this sign and doorway and barrier of opulence would be a golden vine coming from the ground and sprawling out on the roof beams as though it was kind of like holding it up. You've seen things like this, right? Imagine now a solid gold vine coming up and sprawling out how high is the roof, symbolizing the people of Israel and their history with God as the gardener. It said there was so much gold in this vine that wealthy people would come and they would add to it. They would give their gifts and it would buy clusters of grapes or leaves that would then be kind of hammered and molded into this vine as an ever-growing and ever-living testimony of the generation after generation after generation of the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, symbolized in this vine. This metaphor of the vine of Israel. You're going to find it throughout the Old Testament if you take the time to look. And many times when God refers to Israel as a vine, it's often with you know, kind of a little bit of a, you know, to him. Let me read you just two passages that I think are pretty representative of this. Look at how this, this, this ancient song, Psalm 80 We'll talk about God and his relation to Israel. The song cries out, Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. 
you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Lord, why have you broken down the walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Who's the vine? It's the people of Israel. It's a metaphor to describe God's people that God took as a master gardener, taking from one place to plant in another, caring for it and nurturing it so that it would thrive and grow. But now Israel stands in a place where their once former glory is gone. And they cry out, Lord, why are you letting everyone pick our grapes? Are you following the metaphor? Are you tracking the image? Are you with me? Here's another from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, where God cries out through the prophet, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This picture of God cultivating his people like a gardener would cultivate the vines in a vineyard. Loving it, caring for it, and going, what more could I have done? I've watered you. I fertilized you. I drove the predators away. I built a garden, a hedge, a wall, a fence around you to keep the crows and the rabbits and whatever nonsense comes trying to raid it. Go with the image he's setting up. But who is the vine? Israel. The covenant people of God, and now is here is Jesus at the temple, the capital, the center of the covenant people of God, arguably standing before a golden vine that for generations has come to represent God's people. And what does Jesus say? I'm the vine. You are the branches. Anyone who remains in me, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's craziness. What Jesus is actually saying. 
I am the covenant people of God. I am the connection. I am the source. I am the chosen one. I am the vine. Look, Jesus was a carpenter, not a farmer. He's not just picking random metaphors here. No, he's making a very deliberate statement about what connection with God looks like and means. For centuries, people were claiming connection with God based on their heritage and identity, like many Christians do today. I go to church. I'm baptized. My father was a deacon. My grandpa was a pastor. We're 18th generation. Who the heck cares? And if you are basing your relationship with God on anything other than Jesus, he has words, and here they are. You can do nothing. Oh, I am the vine, Jesus says. It is through me that you find connection. Or to put it more clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But sometimes we need pictures, and Jesus knows it. Because clear and present statements are forgotten. Our property is infested at home with wild vines. If you ever walk the Hebron Trail or maybe the McHenry Trail system or, or get off into Glacier or places like that, you'll find them. You'll walk along and these things will get as, as big as like, they look like boa constrictors, so these, these woody trunks like this, and they are predatory. They will take over everything. They grow in a day. You cannot kill the roots on these things. Believe me, I tried. And they don't stop until they cover every tree, every shrub, every bush, and smother it. There is no stopping the vine. But what we've learned is that you can fight and you can pull and you can kick at the roots. You can spend day after day, and believe me, we've done it, pulling it out after it's spread off your trees. Or you can just snip it. Snip it at its base. Won't kill the root. It's impossible, literally. And within 24 hours, the vine withers and fades, it strikes me every time we face this. How this plant that is flourishing, that no other plant has a chance against, could probably be so arrogant in its thinking of how great and mighty and unstoppable it is. But the minute you snip it from the root, it withers and fades. Oh, how dependent on the root it is. And Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. You can ask your heavenly father and he'll do it. You can do anything. But apart from me, oh, disciples, hear it. Hear what he says, apart from me, you can do 
nothing. Because Jesus is the source of what God is doing to connect people to him. And when he does, he calls them friends. There's not many people called friend of God in the Bible. Look it up sometime and count it. I'll give you the two. Abraham and Moses. But Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the way of Abraham, the way of Moses, the connection you're looking through those things to find identity in me, because mm. I am here, I am the vine, the identity is in me. And anyone who is connected into me becomes God's friend. If you want to be a friend of God, Jesus invites you to that in him. For Jesus, this is so important that when so many other things could be said in a limited period of time, he chooses this. I am the vine. You are the branches. Remain in me, I'll remain in you. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Drill it in. And we'll leave the story with that today. So I'd like to pray. God in heaven, you have cultivated us, nurtured us, protected us, and have planted us. But we have withered and died without you. And so you've planted your son And in him, we can find life, bear fruit, become friends of you and find that our joy is complete. Lord, I pray for those gathered here today, wavering and weak and their connection, nourish them. I pray for those today thriving in your vineyard, Protect them from an arrogance of their own making and move them with gratitude that you have grafted them in. For those who are withering and dying, Lord, may they know your invitation to trust in your son, believe, and in him find the life and joy that you offer the vitality and flourishing that this image is meant to bring. Help us all in this. Help our church in this. God, we pray. Amen. Amen. May he connect you to him deeply. So we've got a final song today. Band, I think, is going to come up. I don't know. We're going to find out. Why not, huh? 
Let me prep you for a couple of things while they get ready before we wrap up here this morning. I'm going to throw a number on the screen. The Spirit of Jesus, I want to be your friends too. Make a connection with us. Take your time here at Fellowship of Faith beyond just an anonymous drop-in. Text the word here to 855-465-2720. And if we could be praying for you today, you can text that prayer request to the same number that you see up on the screen right there. If you brought an offering today, thank you. Multiple ways to give here at Fellowship of Faith. But I want to give a special shout out to a cross-section of you. Offering envelopes are finally in. You old school check writers who love to have the box or shove the cash, whatever that is, into a pocket and drop it in a bucket, they are here. You can pick them up at the Welcome Center after the service. If you'd like a personalized set of these, you know, monogrammed or something with your name, I guess, you can request that and we'll have them for you next week. Thank you for your ongoing support in that. We are leaning in more and more to Holy Week. The week that changed the world, it kicks off with Palm Sunday, takes us through that upper room experience of Monday, Thursday, Jesus' death on Good Friday and Easter. It is April 2nd for Palm Sunday this year, three weeks from today. We have this tradition here at Fellowship of Faith that we've been doing for some time where we encourage people to walk to church that day. Rain, snow, or shine from wherever you live. Do you live in McHenry? You chose wisely. <laughs> Johnsburg, not as much. Hebron, Richmond, Genoa City, Algonquin Lake in the Hills, Marengo. I pity you. <laughs> Walk to church that day. We'll share more with you next week about why we do it and what it's all about, but we've got to get ahead of the curve on something here today. We often encourage people to wear the colors, dress in a pilgrimage shirt, and you can see the picture of it right up there on the screen and our merch store opens here today. To get orders to you in time, we have got a three-day window. There's something very biblical in that, I think. <laughs> if you'd like a Palm Sunday shirt this year, a Palm Sunday shirt this year, did that come out? If you'd like a shirt this year, Hop onto our website, fellowshipoffaith.org, right there on the home page. You will find a button that takes you to the online store. You can order your size directly. You can pay directly. You can get T-shirt or hoodie, whatever your heart desires. Long sleeve, short sleeve, who knows what else is on there, but you'll have some fun finding it. Shirts will be here before Palm Sunday, the week before to pick up. If you'd like to get on it, don't delay. The store closes Wednesday. So with all that being said, if I can leave you with a final blessing, may God bless you. May he keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In Christ the Lord, know, looks upon you with favor. And as Jesus will say, may that bring you life 
May it bring you joy. May it bring you peace. May your feet be planted. Your life be rooted and grafted in him. Thanks for coming. Let's, uh, let's get up on our feet one last time. Sing one final praise to God before we get out of here.